Well, good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Not so good? Confused about how you're doing? <laughs> okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you maybe. We'll see. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3. If you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Blueprint. Uh, it's a study of this letter written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 AD, and in the letter he addresses essentially what it means to be a Christian. Uh, in fact, if you were around last week, we, you know, we, heard, him, we heard Paul talk about how um, because of the cross of Jesus, because of his sacrifice for the sins of humanity, when we put our faith in him, we are, we're all forgiven. We're reconciled to God. We're reconciled to one another. Paul says we are super reconciled, which is a word he made up. But he says we're all reconciled. And then, and then he goes on to explain how God's purpose is to take Jews and Gentiles, essentially men and women from all different walks of life, from all over the globe, uh, from all different nations, colors, and cultures, and create in Jesus one new people, one new humanity, thus making peace. In other words, Paul says being a Christian means, well, being a Christian establishes, means that we establish a deep spiritual connection uh, with other people, a connection that transcends race, culture, nationality, allowing us to share our faith together, our love together, celebrate diversity, living at peace with one another. That was all in chapter 2. As Paul continues in chapter 3, he writes this in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you're, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it's now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ, or in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me uh, through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are for your glory for this reason. And I'm going to stop right there. Um, and I ask you guys a question. I want you to be honest. Did any of you find Paul's train of thought here particularly hard to follow? Be honest about it. I had a hard time even reading it out loud. It's very choppy. Uh, and I, I had a very difficult, uh, difficult time following uh, what he was saying. In fact, uh, a lot of people do. A lot of people find this text uh, a bit confusing, uh, which is why it is an often overlooked or just plain ignored section of his letter. So what's going on with all this? Well, if you recall, last week I mentioned how when Paul wrote this letter, he was imprisoned in Rome. And he wrote a number of letters from Rome. This was one of them. And he mentions that fact as he begins in verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in, then in the middle of the sentence, 
translators insert a big dash. And they place the dash there to indicate that what follows is a complete uh, change of direction in Paul's uh, flow of thought. Uh, Literary scholars refer to it as a digression or an incidental excursus, which is just a fancy academic way of describing it. But you can feel free to think of what Paul does here as sort of a squirrel moment. You know, he's writing, he's like, squirrel. You know, a minute, he thinks of something. <laughs> Out of the blue, he thinks of something. For me, it's sort of like an, like an, oh yeah, by the way, interruption of thought. See, as Paul mentions being a prisoner, it suddenly dawns on him. It just suddenly dawns on him that those to whom he's writing may be struggling with that. Maybe they may be upset and, and discouraged about his suffering. In fact, we know that's the case because he states in verse 13, he says, I ask you not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you. So here's essentially what's happening. Paul begins writing. And in verse 1, he says, he has this thought, and he says, for this reason, and then he returns to that thought in the same phrase in verse 14. He says, for this reason, but in between, what we have is, is somewhat of an unstructured ramble. And I say that because these 12 verses are stylistically different from the rest of the letter. I mean, Paul really does just kind of break off in thought. He blurts out a few incidentals that, that, that just come into his mind. And uh, it's very choppy. It, it, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's not an easy text to work with. And it takes some time to figure out what he's saying exactly and discern what are the takeaways from this you know, for, for his readers and really for us. What are the takeaways? And I don't, I don't claim to have all the answers But it seems to me that in this, oh, by the way, excursus, Paul relates a number of important things that we should talk about. Um, Probably don't have time to get all of them, so I want to give a couple uh, of, I think, key ones. For example, in writing this, Paul affirms the reality of life and that it can be very hard sometimes. He says, I am a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. And you know, this this is... what I so appreciate about Scripture, that it doesn't sugarcoat things. From beginning to end, from start to finish, the biblical text reveals that life sometimes is just really hard. It's really difficult. And it's not hard just for the quote-unquote bad or immoral people, but also for those who are relatively good and decent. Tragedies, injustice, injury, illness, disappointments, disease, death, no one, no one escapes those things. You might avoid them for a while, but eventually uh, we all experience them. As Jesus put it, uh, he says, you know, a rain, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, on, the, on the, the religious and the irreligious, on the Christian and the non-Christian, on the church and the unchurched. Life in this sinful world of ours is hard for everybody. And just because Paul is an apostle, just because he's a leader, just because he's a Christian, <laughs> didn't mean that he was exempt from suffering. And when he realizes that his readers might be struggling with the idea of his imprisonment, he doesn't doesn't tell them to, oh, you know, suck it up, or he doesn't try to tell them to to not deny the, 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 uh, the whole situation. Instead, he just wants them to recognize that suffering, suffering is an unfortunate part of our broken human experience. It is. It's true for all of us, and it's important for us to come to grips with it. Because listen to me, let me tell you, trust me on this. If you think, if you go through life thinking that you are somehow immune to it, 
then when suffering enters your life, in whatever, whatever form, it will shake you. And it, it will shake your faith, if not shatter it. In addition to that, when suffering enters the life of someone you care about, like his friends, the Ephesians, cared about Paul, you experience a sort of suffering by association. You know what I mean by that? When someone you love is unjustly mistreated or someone you love is sick or in difficult, painful circumstances, you hurt for them, you feel for them, you feel helpless, you know, you get, you get discouraged over their suffering. In fact, the term Paul uses here for discouraged literally means to lose your heart. He says to the Ephesians, look, don't, lo- don't let your hearts be ripped out over, over my situation. What is Paul doing there? Well, he's trying to help his friends. He's trying to comfort them. He knows life is hard, and it's hard for everybody. And he knows that we all need to understand that and deal with it realistically. And what's really intriguing to me is is how in the midst of his imprisonment, in the midst of his uncertainty, in the midst of his suffering, and here in the context of this, oh, by the way, ramble, Paul immediately turns his attention to the topic of what? Grace. He's, he's talked about it a lot already in the letter, right? But in this section, three times he refers to the, gra- uh, the grace of God directly, and then four times he uses the term mysterion, which is a Greek word for mystery, as an indirect reference. How does mystery connect to grace? Well, you know, for us, the word mystery um, refers to, or carries the idea of something that's hidden, obviously, and we, something that we have to work hard to uncover, most of us love good mysteries. We, whether it's reading a novel or watching an episode of CSI, we enjoy the challenge. We enjoy the challenge of trying to figure out some hidden fact, some hidden truth. But the Greek term that Paul uses and the way that he uses it actually carries the opposite idea. It's not something hidden that you have to discover. It's something that's been revealed because you'd never figure it out. Because it's so counterintuitive, it's so otherworldly to us as human beings, we would never guess it. What's the mystery? Well, every time Paul uses the term mysterion, he uses it in reference to the gospel, the good news of God's grace. And that's the great mystery. That's the mystery that's been revealed to us, he says, in Jesus. Now think about it. The Ten Commandments are never referred to as a mystery. Uh, the golden rule is never referred to as a, as a mystery. The golden rule being, you know, do unto others as you have them do to you. That's never called a mystery. Why? Well, because those commandments, you know, don't murder, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't, you know, treat others as you would have them to treat you. Those, those all make sense to us as human beings. That's con- just common sense. Which is why all religions endorse those ideals as ways to merit God's favor. The notion being... Uh, you know, if you can just keep most of the commandments, follow all the rules, perform the rituals well enough, and be good enough to others, you can earn your way. You can earn your way to heaven. I don't know how you feel about it. That is not good news for me. That is not good news at all. Because I cannot keep the commandments perfectly. And I am by nature a very rebellious rule breaker. And I don't like rituals. And I'm way more about being good to myself than being good to others. We all are. We all are. But see, here's why all religions propose the same thing, that if you're good enough, you're moral enough, you're pious enough, you can merit your way to heaven, nirvana, paradise, enlightenment, whatever, because in our sinful human arrogance, 
we believe that we can accomplish it ourselves. But we can't. We don't and we never will. The good news is we don't have to, see? In Jesus, deity took on humanity. God came to earth and prevailed through weakness and suffering. Jesus won through losing. He rescued our lives by sacrificing his own. He he has overcome our sin and guilt by taking it on himself. And that is a redemptive plan we human beings would never, we'd never come up with. We'd never imagine. We'd never conceive it. Because we have too high opinion of our own goodness and our own abilities. That's why we're all about works. We're all about earning our way. But in the end, that kind of religious thinking just crushes us. It just crushes us. And that's what makes Christianity different from religion. Because when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're, you recognize, in a very a genuinely humble way, you recognize yourself to be a sinful, broken human being who could never earn your way. To, you just couldn't do it. You couldn't earn your way to heaven. And yet at the exact same time, you know that you're unconditionally loved, forgiven, accepted, delighted in, and welcomed by God into his kingdom, his family, into his presence forever because you're saved by grace. Paul says that's the mystery. That's the mystery that has been revealed to us in Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, look, I'm the least, or I'm, I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people. He says, you know, but I, I've experienced God's grace. In fact, he says to his listeners, one of the, one of the measures of God's grace to me is that as a Jewish, Jewish person, I get, to, uh, I get to share this mystery with all of you Gentiles. I get to preach to you the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden to God who created all things. Now it's important to understand that this was a big deal to, to Gentiles at the time because, um, because the ancient pagan religions of the day were known as mystery religions. That's what they were called. They were known like that because, because they taught that salvation came by way of attaining divine esoteric knowledge. And only a limited few people were able to uncover it. It was limited. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. He's saying, you don't, you don't have to uncover anything. The true divine mystery has been revealed in Jesus. It's the mystery of God's grace that comes to not just a select few, but to everyone who believes Jew and Gentile alike. It comes to everyone. You know, I realize, uh, I realize we talk a lot about grace around here, and, I, and I, I'm sure there are, there are mornings when some of us are thinking, okay, yeah, 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 I get it. I get it, God's grace, I get it. Let's move on to some deeper theology. But don't you see, there is, there is no deeper theology than the grace of God. There isn't. And Paul says, it is the gospel. It is the good news. It is Christianity. It is the mystery of mysteries that's been revealed and offered to us to all of humanity and through Jesus. There's nothing deeper. That's why Paul talked about it all the time. In fact, in one of his, his letters to the early church, the apostle Peter talk, writes about the gospel of grace. He says, it's so amazing. Even the angels long to look into these things. They're enthralled by the wonder of it all. You see, the the reality of divine grace, when you learn of it, and when you embrace it, when you experience it through faith in Jesus, you you can't help but be overwhelmed by it. 
You can't help but be overwhelmed by the reality of it. And so you never get tired of, of thinking about it or talking about it or studying it or singing about it or sharing it with others. It's not superficial theology. It is a beautiful and deeply profound truth of God. And it's not theoretical. It is life-changing. It's life-changing. Is that how you see it? Is that how you experience it? Because here's the paradox. If you say, yeah, I fully understand God's grace, you probably don't. But if you say, I believe it, but I can't fully grasp it, or it's overwhelming to me, then you probably do. I like how well-known author Anne Lamott describes her experience in her book, Traveling Mercies. She says, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. And I think that's a pretty good summary. Now, just when you thought we were done talking about it, (laughs) get this. Uh, Immediately after Paul explains how God gifted him the privilege of preaching about and making plain this mystery of grace to everyone, he says, by the way, it's it's not just my privilege, it's also God's intention for the church. Verse 10, he says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Translation, he says, the mystery of God's grace, the good news of Jesus, is to be shared not just through me, one person, no, 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 he says, but through the church, the community of God's people, through all of us. We're all, we're all God's intention is for all of us to make known this mystery to people. How? You know, obviously, According to Paul, it involves, it involves verbal proclamation. You know, he says, I get to preach the boundless riches of Christ and make plain to everyone this mystery to explain to everybody. And then he quickly points out how God's intended for everyone in the church to do that. So clearly, you know, making the gospel known means, it means preaching. It means teaching. It means, you know, sharing about God's grace with other people, explaining to them what, what, this good news of, of Jesus and, and, and Christianity. But, but that's not all of it. You know, that's not all of it. Making this mystery known isn't, isn't just about verb, the verbal exchange of truth and information. It's not just a rational proposition or presentation. It's also experiential. It's about serving others. I realize we moved through the text very quickly, and you, you may have missed this, but in verse 7, Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel. I became a servant. And no one would have affirmed that more readily than the Gentile Christians in the Ephesian church who were going to be getting this letter. They knew firsthand how although they were were ethnically, culturally, religiously different from Paul, that he reached out to them. He went to them. He lived with them. He loved them. He served them. He gave up two years of his life for them. And the church was established uh, there in, in Ephesus, and Christianity spread from there because of Paul's willingness, his willingness to do that, to sacrifice, to g- generously, compassionately, selflessly, and indiscriminately serve those who were different from him, those who were even hostile to him. Are we doing that as the church? Are we willing to do it because that's God's intention? And finally, Paul indicates that making known the mystery of grace involves love and unity in the church. And why do I say that? Well, again, Paul states God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, he says, should be made known. And the Greek term we translate manifold here is an absolutely fascinating term. 
It's a compound word, a very simple compound word, but the, it's profound in its meaning. Literally means many colors. Many colors. Think about that for a second. What, is Paul, what has Paul been talking about? What has he been emphasizing? He's been emphasizing how the gospel of grace is offered to everybody, right? Jew and Gentile alike. And, and, and those who believe, those who put their faith in Christ, no matter race, no matter culture, nationality, socioeconomic status, everyone, all are forgiven, all are super reconciled to God and to each other, all brought together in the church, one family, one body, one new humanity who are at peace with each other. Paul is saying here that the healing of racial and social division that's displayed in and through the colorful diversity and loving unity of the Christian church is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. It's an expression of grace. It's a testimony to the wisdom of God and a picture of things to come, heaven. And it's not just a testimony to the people around us, Paul says, it's a testimony, get this, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, which is Paul's way of saying the spiritual world, both the demonic and the angelic. In his study guide on Ephesians, theologian N.T. Wright calls this verse, verse 10, one of the New Testament's most, um, New Testament's most powerful statements um, of the reason for the church's existence, and he puts it this way. He says, the rulers and authorities must be confronted with God's wisdom in all of its rich variety, and this is to happen through the church. Not, we should quickly add, through what the church says, though that's vital as well, rather through what the church is. Namely, the community in which men, women, and children of every race, color, social, and cultural background come together in glad worship of the one true God. It is precisely this many-sided, many-colored, many-splendored identity of the church that makes the point. God's wisdom, Paul says, is like that too, like a many-faceted diamond which twinkles and sparkles with all the colors in the rainbow. The rulers and authorities, both the earthly and their shadowy heavenly counterparts, always tend to create societies and social structures in their own flat, boring image, monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. Worse yet, they tend to marginalize or kill people or groups who don't fit their narrow band of acceptability. The church is to be, by the very fact of its existence, a warning to them that their time is up and an announcement to the world that there's a different way to be human. Here's my Reiki summary. Diversity in the church and love and unity and peace among her people is a testimony of the wisdom and grace of God before the entire universe. Visible and invisible. Visible and invisible. So, okay, uh, I'm running out of time. Let me go and point one more thing. Uh, I want you to keep in mind, as Paul's writing this, he's not writing uh, a thesis paper for a panel of academic experts. And neither is he writing, or lecturing, that is, uh, a theology to a class of students. He is simply attempting to care for, to pastor a church of hurting, anxious disheartened friends. And so he, he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings. Interpretive note, whenever the term therefore appears at the beginning of a sentence, it's therefore a reason. I learned that in grad school and it cost me a lot of money. So, you know, write that down somewhere. You see therefore, it's therefore a reason. Now, what's the reason? Well, it's a connecting term. 
And in this case, Paul is connecting why the Ephesians shouldn't be discouraged to what he has just said, which was this. In him, in Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Therefore, don't be discouraged. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, but, okay. But how is it that a guy held captive in a Roman prison can write about freedom? How is it that while facing such a dire situation, Paul can exude and encourage confidence? How can he write about God's grace and God's promises given the state that he's in? Here's how. Paul had insight to some spiritual realities about suffering that transcended his circumstances. What did he know? Well, he knew, for one, that there's no suffering we experience is in vain. There's always some purpose behind it. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we can kind of tease out what those purposes may be, offering us a degree of comfort. But other times, other times, let's be honest, we can discern no possible point to the pain or the trial or the discomfort we're experiencing, whether we're experiencing in our life or someone else's that we know is experiencing it. It makes no sense to us. But with those seemingly pointless sufferings in mind, think about what Paul writes here regarding our, our testimony and who is watching us. It's not just the world around us, but the unseen spiritual realm as well. In other words, in moments of pain and misery, the entire universe, including the invisible, is watching to see how we handle it, how we deal with it. And that was certainly the case in the Old Testament of a guy named Job, if you know his story. His extensive and seemingly purposeless suffering was played out not only before his friends and his family, but the spiritual realm, both the, the angelic and the demonic. I mean, what if I told you that uh, starting today, um, you are going to be followed around 24-7 with a special camera and a live feed of your life, everything you do, every action, every word, every thought, uh, would be uh, streamed online to billions, for billions to witness. You know, would that make a difference in how you live? And what you say, what you do, where you go, how you respond to, uh, to frustration, disappointment, pain, and suffering. I'm thinking it would. I'm thinking it would. Um, in fact, realizing the camera is going to beam your life to billions, you might consider it even an opportunity. An opportunity to let the world know something about you, something important, something that you want to share with everybody. It would make your life meaningful and hugely impactful. But don't you see, Paul's suggesting that that's already the case. It's like you're already on camera. I, mean, I don't know how many angels and demons there are in the universe. I don't know how many can dance on the end of a pin. But whatever the case, I, even if no human being is watching you and no human being knows of your suffering, the spiritual realm is watching and knows. Paul says everything you do is witnessed by some being in the universe, not the least of who is God himself. Paul also knew that because of Jesus, no suffering can ultimately destroy you. I mean, what did Paul call himself at the start of all this? He called himself a prisoner. A prisoner of Rome? A prisoner of Caesar? No. He said, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Meaning what? Meaning that no matter what happened to him, he says, Jesus has me. 
Jesus had him. I tell you, Paul, if you know his story, Paul, from the moment he became a believer, man, he went blind for a while. He, then he experienced persecution. He was chased out of town. He was jailed. He was beaten. He was stoned. Three times he was in a ship. He was shipwrecked. He was bit by a snake. Uh, uh, he, was, he was hungry at times. He was thirsty. There were times he was homeless. And by the time he writes this letter, he's in a Roman prison. And yet he says, Jesus has me. I'm his prisoner. In other words, he's saying, like, if the Romans let me go here, I'm free to serve Jesus more and serve you more. If they kill me, then I'm really free. Then I'm really free because of Jesus and God's grace. I can enter the presence of the Almighty, loved, forgiven, accepted, and with great confidence. So yeah, suffering, sure, it can hurt me, but I know it can't ultimately destroy me. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Because the same is true for you. If you put your faith in Jesus, suffering will hurt, sure, but it won't ultimately destroy you. And then very quickly, Paul knew that all suffering is for someone else's glory. He specifically says, I realize my difficult situation is somehow for the sake of you Gentiles. And he says, my suffering for you is, is your glory, i.e., it's for your benefit. Somehow, some way, it's for your eternal benefit is what he's saying. And I suppose our initial reaction to that, for some of us at least, could be, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not digging that. I don't like that very much. I don't, I don't like the, the, the idea or the fact that Paul or I suffer for someone else's glory or benefit. That doesn't seem fair to me. And yet, isn't that exactly what Jesus did for you and for me? He suffered innocently. He was betrayed, he suffered injustice, torture, crucifixion, and death, all for you, for me, for Paul, for all of humanity. And so when we suffer for the glory and benefit of others, including God, we become more like Jesus, and that's never a bad thing. So I, I have to be, I gotta be honest with you guys, man, I was gonna skip this section, Paul's letter. On Monday, I was gonna skip it. Because I'm like, I don't know what's happening here, you know. Uh, because he just, what he says, how he says it is just unusually challenging and very hard to follow. But I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't wimp out, you know. I'm, I'm, because now I realize that what in some respects is an unstructured ramble on closer examination communicates some very important truths and spiritual insights. Ones that carry practical implications for our lives. And so... I'm really glad Paul had this squirrel moment, this, oh, by the way, digression of thought. I'm sure it was meaningful for the Ephesians, and I certainly hope it's meaningful for us. Let's pray. Our Father, it's part of our human nature to want to complicate things, especially when it comes to understanding who we are in this universe and who our Creator is and what you are like. And we have this, this propensity to, to really complicate it because we believe we're able on our own merits, through our own abilities and our own goodness, we're able to gain your favor and earn our way to heaven. It's the message of all of religion. You know, at the end of the day, it crushes us. 
it, it destroys us. It disheartens us. And yet, the great mystery that's been revealed is that we don't have to be good enough. We can never be good enough. That your grace is revealed, the offer of your grace is revealed in and through Jesus. And all we do is believe and embrace and accept it. I pray that each of us would think about that and not complicate the issue. That we would believe and we would celebrate Jesus and the grace that comes with him. Forgiveness of sin, the reconciling of us with you and us with one another. May our lives together be lives of grace and point people to you, their God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Hey, uh, thanks, thanks for coming this morning, and I hope it's been helpful, and especially for those of you who maybe just new to this whole Christian thing or, you know, someone brought you to church. I talked to someone this morning who just happened to come a few months ago out of the blue, hadn't been to church uh, since a little kid and came and now have committed their life to Jesus and are in a life group and, and thriving and growing. And it's all, it goes all back to this understanding of the true gospel, this gospel of grace in Jesus. And, uh, and I hope you get it, because that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not about religion. So uh, I know I talk about it a lot. Get used to it. Okay? So it's not changing. It's not changing real soon. So, uh, uh, but thanks for coming. And oh, by the way, you know, I, working through a tough section of text like, like, um, like we did this morning, I, I don't just sit in my office and all of a sudden, you know, the Holy Spirit descends on the building and gives me all this information and enlightenment and inspiration. Uh, I use a lot of different tools. Um, and study tools. And one of the things I read prior to the series that was helpful to me was N.T. Wright's very short little simple guide on Ephesians. Uh, and that's available at the Resource Center if you'd like it. It's just, it's really easy. It's accessible for anybody. And it, it's just a really good, he says some really good stuff in there. And uh, it's been helpful for me. So uh, come back next week. We'll continue on in the letter. And I, I hope you'll have a good week. And by the way, if, if, if you're struggling, you know, Paul was suffering in his situation. He was struggling. If you've had a rough week, if some things going on in your life that you just like someone to talk to and pray for, uh, you, uh, our, our prayer team members will be down here following. Okay? Let me pray for us in this. We're dismissed. And now, Lord, as we leave the building, as we go back out into this world, um, I, I pray that we would we would so understand your love and grace in our lives because of Jesus that we would live lives of grace, extending it to others, uh, sharing the news of it with others, serving others as an expression, expression of it, uh, and Lord, um, through all that, point people to Jesus. Now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your church. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.